Christmas begins in hope, and its end, the goal to which it points, is peace. But the heart of Christmas, the center of the center of the circle, is something else, another phenomenon, another idea, another experience that's even more important. You might think that the heart of Christmas is faith or trust, since faith gets so much attention in Christianity, but it's not faith. It's love. It must be love. The greatest commandment, Jesus says, is to love God and love your neighbor, so it must be love. But it's not love. The heart of Christmas is the thing for the sake of which we love and have faith and hope and make peace. It's the thing that if we lack it, love falls flat, faith is hollow, hope and peace go grim and gray. Have you guessed it yet? And the real question is, do you have enough of it in your life. I'm Matthew Meyer Bolton, and this is Strange New World, a show about understanding the Bible for skeptics, believers, and everybody in between. This is part three of our four-part series on understanding Christmas, and in this episode, we come to the heart of the matter. It's not hope or peace or faith or even love. To learn what it is, we can do no better than to listen carefully to a scraggly prophet in the wilderness, and first, to a teenage girl in first-century Palestine. Here's what we know about her. She was a reader, or at least a listener. We don't know if she was literate. Very few people could read in those days. But over the centuries, in paintings of the Annunciation, the angel Gabriel's visit, Mary is almost always reading reading a devotional with selections from scripture, or reading scripture itself. Just Google paintings of the Annunciation, and you'll see her again and again reading and reading and reading. And her response to Gabriel's news, the song that she spontaneously composes and sings after the angel departs, shows that she knew well the ancient story of Hannah, perhaps because she'd read it, or because she'd heard it read in her synagogue. In any case, she knows it by heart. The picture Luke paints of Mary is of a thoughtful, imaginative student of Scripture. She knows the ancient stories and forms, and she makes use of them. She makes them her own as she sings. This is the essential truth behind all those paintings of Mary with a book on her lap, or kneeling and reading at a devotional stand, as the angel appears to her with his impossible wings, bowing before her simple, down-to-earth grace. Mary is young, but she is learned, whether or not she is literate. She is intelligent and discerning, and she knows the tradition in which she stands. The first word the angel says to Mary is a word of greeting. In Greek, the word is kaire. It was a common salutation, often translated into English as greetings or hail, as in Hail Mary, full of grace. But what the word literally means is rejoice or be glad. And we're accustomed, of course, to think of what the angel says as a cause for rejoicing, as good news for Mary. I mean, what could be better? An angel comes to your room and tells you you're going to be famous. But think of it from her point of view. She's a young woman in a world dominated by men. She's engaged to a respectable man, Joseph, and now, by all appearances, it's going to seem as though she's been unfaithful to him. He'll likely break off the engagement, and she'll be alone with her child, disgraced. 
And so her first reaction, understandably, is to be much perplexed by the angel's words, as Luke puts it. But then she draws on her learning. She listens and recognizes in Gabriel's news an ancient pattern, a kind of divine signature. And she remembers the old story of Hannah. The story of Hannah is in 1 Samuel, another book in the Bible's sacred library. Hannah eventually becomes Samuel's mother, but before that, she prays fervently at her local sanctuary, so fervently, in fact, that she draws scorn and eventually respect from the priest. And then later, thanking God for the birth of her son, Hannah composes and sings a song of divine majesty and power, casting God as a master of reversals. God raises up the poor from the dust, she sings, even as the bows of the mighty are broken. The song becomes a classic in the Israelite tradition, and those are the lyrics Mary remembers. Hannah sings that God raises up the poor from the dust, and Mary sings that God lifts up the lowly. Hannah sings that God breaks the bows of the mighty, and Mary sings that God brings down the powerful from their thrones. Mary is clearly singing in the tradition of Hannah, inspired by Hannah. In a sense, she is singing with Hannah, applying Hannah's song to her own situation. And in that sense, while Mary is singing about her own life and Gabriel's news, She's also singing about the larger pattern of redemption down through history, and ultimately about the creator of that pattern, the God of reversals, who turns the world upside down, or rather right side up, lifting the lowly, dethroning the mighty, and bringing a new world into being. Mary perceives that God is not just doing something wonderful, God is doing something wonderful yet again continuing and developing the ancient pattern, just as in the days of old, just as in the days to come. The divine poet, we might say, has written, is writing, and will continue to write these world-turning verses, this ongoing signature pattern, this cosmic revolutionary poem of love and mercy. For those with eyes to see, who study the pattern in the past so they can make it out in the present, the pattern is right there. It's visible, and Mary sees it. And so, like Hannah, she sings. She understands that despite how things may look, the angel's greeting, kaire, rejoice, be glad, is fitting after all. This is a central way, arguably the central way, that the Bible works in practice. In the last episode of this series, we saw how the Bible isn't a book, but rather a sacred library, and that the various books within the library often refer to one another, agreeing and disagreeing, riffing and developing. And one of the most common ways biblical writers tell their stories and make their arguments is by interpreting the present and the future in terms of the classic prestigious patterns of the past. Call it thinking through scripture. The Exodus story, for example, becomes an archetype, a framework for making sense of what God is doing here and now, and also what God will do down the road. 
we saw Luke thinking through Scripture in this way and John the Baptizer thinking through Scripture in this way in the last episode. And now, here's Mary doing the same. Hannah's song is the archetype, the framework through which Mary makes sense of how what looks like bad news, a cause for despair, is actually good news, a cause for rejoicing. The old stories, the old songs, help us to see and hear and compose and sing new ones. My earliest memory of joy is my first day in summer camp. I was probably eight or nine years old. It was a traditional camp, although at the time it was all new to me. Woods and lakefront and popsicle stick crafts in a barn, campfires and singing and bunk beds and counselors who seemed fantastically cool. I remember it dawning on me that the day's schedule was just one fabulous activity after another. Canoeing followed by kickball, followed by crafts, followed by capture the flag. We hadn't even had lunch yet. And then we were gonna stay up late and sit around a bonfire and sing songs. I mean, it was just too good to be true. It was all happy, I was happy, but the reason I associated it with joy is that there was something stunning, almost disconcerting about it. I remember it seemed like, almost like we were getting away with something, like I had somehow accidentally stumbled into a hidden world of pure delight. Other memories of joy come to mind. A summer night I spent sleeping under starlight on a mountaintop in Yosemite National Park, watching the sun rise in the morning or the days my two kids were born, holding them against my chest, skin to skin, or kayaking alone on a flatwater river just after the first snow of the season. What's your earliest memory of joy, or your most vivid? One thing I notice is that they aren't necessarily happy or cheerful moments. There's something deeper going on when it comes to joy. It was cold that night in Yosemite, uncomfortable even. Labor and delivery is harrowing, and even that first day of summer camp was tinged with an anxiety about being somewhere new, away from home. No, happiness is one thing, joy is another. In the United States Declaration of Independence, Jefferson was right when he wrote of the pursuit of happiness. But joy, on the other hand, joy comes to us. If we pursue happiness, joy, we might say, pursues us. It comes when it comes, like a gift or like the dawn. As the psalmist put it in Psalm 30, joy comes with the morning. We don't pursue it any more than we pursue the sun, but the sun does rise. The author and theologian Henry Nouwen draws the distinction between happiness and joy this way. Happiness, he says, usually depends on apparent circumstances, but joy runs deeper. Joy, Nouwen writes, is the experience of knowing that you are unconditionally loved and that nothing, sickness, failure, emotional distress, oppression, war, or even death can take that love away. In this sense, for now and joy and sorrow can not only coexist, joy can be found in the midst of sorrow, in the shadows of sorrow, of despair, 
of difficulty. Take Mary, for instance. By all outward appearances, her situation is perilous and vulnerable, but her song of joy flows from a wellspring deeper than the surface of things, and she doesn't rejoice alone. Her first thought, perhaps even before she remembered Hannah, was of Elizabeth, her relative, who was also pregnant. No sooner had Gabriel left than Mary packed her bags with haste and left her home and her fiancé for an extended stay in the hill country with Elizabeth. Why? No doubt it's partly because of the sheer vulnerability of being a young, pregnant, unmarried woman in first century Palestine, or anywhere in any time for that matter, but perhaps she wanted some distance or some time and space to process what was happening and to do that with an elder and a friend who would understand. Or perhaps she was simply eager to celebrate with a trusted confidant, since joy is seldom complete until it's shared. Whatever her motives, Mary's first move was to Elizabeth's home, a sanctuary of solidarity and support. And the fact that this solidarity was in the hill country of Judea, some distance away from the more prestigious cities of Jerusalem and Rome and even Nazareth, this only underlines the story's central theme. God lifts up the lowly, working out deeds of power through supposedly powerless people and places. Elizabeth, for her part, was another student of the tradition. Her joyful greeting to Mary, Blessed are you among women, echoes ancient words spoken about Jael and Judith, two women famous for the parts they played in liberating Israel. With this greeting, Elizabeth is thinking through Scripture, thinking through the books of Judges and Judith, casting Mary as another liberator, like Jael, like Judith. And so when Mary sings, there's a kind of chorus singing with her. There's Hannah, there's Jael, there's Judith, and there's Elizabeth. And by extension, there's generations upon generations of women throughout the ages, sometimes acknowledged, sometimes hidden, all with crucial roles in salvation history. In effect, these other women are encouraging Mary. Elizabeth tells her that when she heard Mary's greeting, the child in her womb, that is the child in Elizabeth's womb, John the baptizer, leaped for joy. And Elizabeth, in her own way, leaps in her joyous exclamation, as does Mary in her joyous song. The common thread here is a particular kind of anticipatory celebration, taking joy in what has secretly begun, but has not yet fully come into view. Call it joy ahead of time. After all, at this point in the story, both women are still in the midst of shadows and uncertainty, still on the margins of society, and it's just the two of them there, in the hill country. The divine promises themselves seem outlandish, and yet, nevertheless, Mary and Elizabeth joyfully believe and testify and sing. Which brings us to Mary's song itself. It's known as the Magnificat, after the first word in its Latin translation, meaning it magnifies or it praises, as in, my soul magnifies the Lord. The song evokes Hannah's song, and like Hannah's song, it evokes Israel's long-standing relationship with God and shows how deeply formed Mary is in Jewish tradition, and so how it's most likely her who instilled in her son, Jesus, a love of Scripture. 
and thinking through Scripture. Luke's point is clear. Mary is a young woman of vision, learning, artistry, and chutzpah. She interprets her life according to ancient patterns of divine action, and her song encourages us to do the same. But not alone. Joy is not an individual sport. It's a team sport. Mary seeks out allies, both in the past and in the present. So when she sings, she sings in a choir. And what about Elizabeth's leaping little boy, John? Well, he grows up to be that scraggly prophet in the wilderness, John the Baptizer, preaching repentance, right? Not joy. As Luke tells it, John's sermon begins by addressing his audience, You brood of vipers! Not exactly setting a celebratory mood. But if we look deeper, we can see that John, too, is singing in that joyful choir. The heart of his sermon is that what really matters isn't what religion or ethnic group we belong to. What matters most, he says, is what he calls bearing fruit. Okay, the crowd say, then what should we do? John's answer is both straightforward and challenging. Share your abundance with the vulnerable, he says. If you've got two coats, give one away. And do whatever job you have with honesty, integrity, and respect. And the jobs he gives as examples were people who were often seen by the larger community as enemies or traitors. Tax collectors, for example, or soldiers working for the empire. John's vision, in other words, is startlingly inclusive, open to everyone. And his challenge to be more generous and respectful is a dignifying compliment to his listeners. There's nothing more belittling than when we say, so there's this job that needs to be done. It's very, very easy, and there's almost nothing at stake. I mean, it'll take very little time or energy or skill. And as I was thinking about this, I thought of you. You came to mind. You'd be perfect for this job. The invitation is practically an insult. And on the other hand, the converse is also true. To ask someone, to demand of someone, that they do a difficult task with a lot at stake, it's a dignifying compliment to that person. It presumes that you believe that they can rise to the challenge. And dignity is a cause for joy. And so is the openness, the wide-open welcome of John's vision of salvation. You don't have to be a member of an elite to bear fruit. You just have to be able to be generous and honest and respectful. Got two coats? Give one away. But wait a minute, doesn't John's sermon end with a dreadful image, the opposite of a cause for joy, a cause for despair, when he says that Jesus is coming to separate the wheat from the chaff and burn away the chaff in unquenchable fire? How could Luke call that good news? Well, remember, every grain of wheat has a husk. And farmers, even today, use wind to separate these husks, collectively known as chaff, from the grain. The goal being, of course, to save every grain, all of the grain, not to separate good grain from bad grain. This is a metaphor of cleansing and preservation, not division. 
What the wind and fire remove are the husks, the anxieties, self-absorption, apathy, or greed that make us less generous, less fair, or less respectful. That's what God promises to burn away. Those are the husks from which we require liberation. In other words, John's prophetic poetry includes the promise that the Spirit comes in wind and fire not to destroy, but to refine, to restore, to make us more radiant children of God. Will we have to let go of whatever is holding us back? Yes, and those chains will be burned away in God's unquenchable fire, but the chaff is removed for the sake of the wheat. Jesus comes that we might be preserved and restored, and this is indeed good news worthy of rejoicing. Christmas begins in hope against hope. Its end goal is peace, but the heart of Christmas is joy. When good news comes your way and you truly receive it, you respond by rejoicing. And so if there's no rejoicing, then no good news has been received, and Christmas is nothing if not good news of great joy for all people. Without joy, without gladness, love falls flat, faith is hollow, hope and peace go grim and gray, and so do our lives. Joy is the secret of vitality itself. Now that doesn't mean we have to be happy all the time, that would be insufferable, but joy is deeper and higher than mere circumstances, mere happiness. It's the underlying water table, or the descant high above the melody line. It can and does coexist with pleasure and ease, but it can and does also coexist, and in my experience more typically does coexist, with adversity, with struggle, with pain, even the shadows of sorrow and despair. Joy comes with the morning, and here's the mystery. Joy can also come in the middle of the night, at our darkest hours. Joy comes when it comes, like a gift. We don't pursue it. We can only receive it and sing. Christmas, at its best, is a glimpse of that joy that is to come. God knows Christmas is a time of sorrow, too, and struggle. But in those struggles, in those shadows, precisely there, the idea is to follow Mary's lead and draw on our learning, on what we know of those ancient patterns, those divine signatures, those archetypes and forms that describe not only what God has done, but also what God is doing and will yet do, letting the old stories, the old songs, help us see and hear and compose and sing new ones. To not only think about the Bible, but to think through it about the world. For the Bible isn't only a library, it's also a treasury, a repertoire of ways God works. For God is a poet, a composer with a particular style. And so, as in a symphony, we can find signature motifs and themes that are reprised again and again, echoing or resonating with each other. The more familiar we are with these motifs, the better we can hear them and see them and join our voices in the song with Mary and Hannah 
and Jael, and Judith, and Elizabeth, and John the Baptizer. That's what the Bible is for. And as it turns out, singing joy to the world, and meaning it, is what Christmas is for. It's why the angels, when they come, say, Kaire, rejoice, be glad, for I bring you good news of great joy for all people. Strange New World is a SALT Project production, written and produced by me, Matthew Meyer Bolton, with help from Elizabeth Meyer Bolton, music by Pablo J. Garman, Jamie Vizard, and Tom C. Sounds. If you like what you hear, spread the word and give us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It really does help people find us. And feel free to drop us a line at community at saltproject.org. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.